section and rushed it more than I probably should have. Um, but that's where we are at. We're going to go back and look at this lesson again of the, the paralytic being healed. Um, but even before we get there, I want to... I'm in Second Corinthians for some reason. I'm not trying to be there right now. I want to go back and review where we've been at in Mark. So, looking back, we've seen that Jesus was in Capernaum, in his hometown, and he has been uh, ministering in that city in, in chapter 1, preaching and teaching and uh, casting out demons and healing different people of their diseases. We can see in verse 34 of chapter 1, kind of an overview statement, which says that he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he was not permitting them to speak because he, they knew who he was. And so we see that um, at this point, people started to kind of lose focus of what Jesus was doing in his preaching and teaching ministry. And they started to focus on these other things, on his healing ministry and casting out demons. And it seems as if they were looking at Jesus as more of a, a magician than a teacher. And um, that's what they were, were looking for from Jesus. As we continue on, we see that in verse 38, he says, well, he's not going to put up with this. He says, let us go somewhere else to towns that are nearby so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. And so he uh, saw the, the focus of the people in Capernaum, and that it seemed to be in a, a place that he didn't want it to be. And he thought he was going to leave and uh, focus on preaching elsewhere. And so he went all throughout Galilee to do that. And then we saw in verse 40 that he comes upon this uh, this loud leper, right? This leper that... He heals with, with great compassion and love that he puts his hand on him. And rather than Jesus becoming unclean, the leper actually becomes clean. But he disobeys Christ. Remember what Jesus told him to do? What did Jesus tell the, the leper to do? Yeah, and to, to be quiet, right? He says, go talk to the priest, but nobody else. Just keep your mouth shut. And he did the opposite. Uh, we're not told that he went to the priest. We're also not told that he didn't go to the priest, but he definitely didn't keep his mouth closed. He says in verse 45 that he went out and he began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city. He stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. So Jesus then withdrew um, <clears throat> because of the disobedience of this leper he was unable to go into the populated areas. But then we see in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2 that he ends up going back home, back to Capernaum, where his, his home base was. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, it says that many were gathered together so that there was no longer any room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. So here we see that Jesus... He's back to his, his preaching, teaching ministry, right? And people are there, and they're listening to him. They're paying attention to him. Uh, that's a good thing. That's what he wanted. He wanted people to uh, pay attention to his words. He was preaching the gospel, the gospel that is summarized back in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. That he came to preach that the kingdom of God is at hand, and they needed to repent and believe. And 
now they're, they're so crowded in there they can't even get around. This is like uh, Black Friday on like pre-Amazon Prime Black Friday, right? When the stores were actually crowded. Um, they couldn't get around at all. And they began to, it says in verse 3, uh, they brought him a paralytic man carried by four men. And so uh, they would have went upstairs. The stairs would have been outside of the house. And they'd go up onto the roof and start to tear apart the, the thatching of the roof. Um, the, the mud and the straw and reeds and whatnot that are built around the wood. And somehow they, they aimed it just right. And they got this man to fall down right in front of Jesus. <clears throat> well, in verse 5... It says that Jesus, seeing their face, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. And so it goes on. But in verse 5, Jesus heals this man's sins. Or he forgives this man's sins, rather. And what is the, the basis for this man's forgiveness? Seeing their faith. Yes. So he points not just to this man's faith, but also to the faith of the other four. Seeing their faith, he said, son, or in Luke 5 it says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And so it is based upon faith. Um, and then the response from the, the scribes of the Pharisees says, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And last week we looked at uh, how they were right in that assessment that only God can forgive sins. Uh, but obviously they were wrong in their conclusion. They thought, obviously this man is blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. Well, yes, God is the only one who can forgive sins. And Jesus being God has the, the right and the authority to forgive this man's sins. I think that's what is being laid out to us here. He has the authority, just as we've seen all throughout this book up to this point, we'll continue to see that Jesus being God has absolute authority. Um, let's see, not only did Jesus have the authority to forgive this man's sins, but as we saw in verse 6, it says that they were reasoning in their hearts. And verse 8 says that immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, not out loud, but within themselves, they were reasoning, they were thinking. And Jesus said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? So Jesus was absolutely aware of what they were thinking. Uh, let's go to this verse, or this passage rather, in Isaiah 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And we'll see here that uh, the Messiah knows the, the hearts of man, similar to how God in 1 Samuel 16, 7 says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And here in Isaiah 11, verse three, the first three verses, it says, Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. So Jesus is aware of what they were thinking without them having to proclaim this is what they were thinking. They didn't have to say it out loud. He didn't have to see it with his eyes. He is God. He has uh, created their, their hearts and their minds and their ability to think and reason and 
as such, he is fully aware of what they are thinking and reasoning. And we also see in uh, John 2.25 is another passage and, uh, that tells us about Jesus' ability to, to know the heart. It says in that verse that he did not need anyone to testify concerning him, for he himself knew what was in man. Uh, again, being God, he had an understanding and a knowledge of the hearts of men. Verses 8 and 9, back in Mark chapter 2, we see that Jesus answers their question with a question. And we'll see this all throughout Jesus' ministry. He is um, just quick and sharp, and he has that, that way about him. He's going to, to respond with a question, uh, getting people to, to think. That's one of his favorite ways to engage in these different kinds of encounters. And he's asking here, is it easier to, to say in a, a believable or in a verifiable way, son, your, your sins are forgiven, or to tell him, get up and walk? Which one is more easy to, to verify, outwardly speaking? Anybody could just say, your sins are forgiven, but you can't verify if that was actually something that took place. But if you tell somebody to get up and walk, it's easy to, to either credit or discredit that, that action and the power that's behind that action. And so in verse 9 is where we see that. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up immediately, picked up the pallet, and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and we're glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. That was the, the response of the people. They were glorifying God. It says they were all glorifying God, saying, we've never even seen anything like this. Well, before that, back up in verse 10, he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So there, right, right there, we see blatantly the reason that he did that, so that we would know he has authority. This phrase, the Son of Man, it wasn't immediately or would not have in that day been immediately recognized as a messianic title, though it could act, absolutely function as one. In Daniel 7, it talks about the, the Son of Man who will um, have glory and authority in, in the end times. But it was used many times in a more generic way, not speaking of uh, a divine person. Ezekiel was called the, the Son of Man numerous times. Um, so, in a way, this title veiled his identity to, to many, and yet it would be understood by some, by those who knew the scripture, by those whose eyes had been opened, just like Peter's eyes had been opened when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you don't know this because flesh and blood has revealed this to you, but because God has revealed this to you. So some would have known exactly what Jesus was getting at, while others would still have been... Um, blinded to that fact. And then we see in Matthew 9, 8, uh, this gives us insight into the crowd's reactions and um, how they were glorifying God. Matthew 9, 8. Somebody have that for us? It's a, a parallel passage from Matthew's account. The same, uh, same story of this paralytic man being healed. Matthew 9, 8. Somebody got that? Matthew 9, 8. 
When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. All right. What does that verse tell us about their understanding of this whole ordeal, this whole encounter? Read it one more time, Logan. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. All right. What was their conclusion? He was from God. All right. So they thought, okay, this man is from God, right? And they glorified God because of it. But they still thought that Jesus was just a man. Yeah. They glorified God because he had given such authority to men. Right? So they didn't get the fact that he was divine. That was still lost on them. Um, it's very likely that they were still um, thinking, well, maybe he's just a, a prophet, just a man. Remember when David sinned, um, the prophet came to him and said, your sins are forgiving you. But he wasn't the one who was forgiving them, them to him, right? It was God who was forgiving this man's sins, and he was just the messenger revealing that. And so it's very likely that that was the, the understanding. But also the scribes said, this man is, is blaspheming. So they're, they're trying to figure out who this man is. Is Jesus really just a man or is he a, a blaspheming man? Um, he is still revealing himself to, to some while uh, holding the veil over the eyes of others. All right, let's look at this verse not this verse, this quote from Peter Chrysologus. What would you like that for a last name? Chrysologus. All right, he said, uh, take up your bed, carry the very mat that once carried you, change places so that what was the proof of your sickness may now give testimony to your soundness. Your bed of pain becomes the sign of healing. Its very weight, the measure of the strength that has been restored to you. I thought it was kind of interesting the way that he, he put that and the way that Jesus um, used that as an illustration. Notice the commands that Jesus issued this man in verse 11. He said, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. Uh, three things that he would be unable to do in his previous state. He couldn't get up. He couldn't pick up his pallet. He couldn't just go home unless Jesus had interrupted his life and restored his his physical ability which was in reality the the lesser of the two things that he did but it was one that was more verifiable to the the scribes and the pharisees and all the onlookers to verify the fact that he had indeed forgiven sins that's why he said i'm going to heal him so that you will know the son of man does indeed have authority on earth to forgive sins any thoughts or questions on that passage the the healing of this paralytic man All right, that is a, a easy one, a, a good one to remember to, to go to when you want to prove the, the deity of Christ, that he can forgive sins and God alone can forgive sins. Isaiah 43.25 clearly says only God can forgive sins. So the, the pairing of those two verses is a, a pretty clear testimony of the, the deity of Christ. In my Bible, I have Isaiah 43.25 written right next to that passage because I don't have the, the memory to always connect those together in my mind. So I've written it down in the margin of my Bible. All right, let's continue on. Let's look at the, the call of Matthew. 
we've already seen four disciples being called to Christ in this gospel. Who were those disciples? Back in chapter one, you guys remember? Yeah, the two brother fishermen group, right? Simon, Andrew, and James, and John. And now we see uh, Jesus back here in Capernaum calling uh, a fifth disciple, uh, Levi, or Matthew, to himself. It says, starting in verse 13, that he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And so notice where Jesus was. He had gone out by the seashore and all the people were were coming to Jesus. And what was Jesus doing at this point out by the seashore? He was not selling seashells by the seashore. (laughs) Verse 13, what was he doing by the seashore? He was teaching them. Good. And again, this is the the purpose for which Jesus came, right? He came to to preach and to teach. Um, Going back and just looking at the the teaching ministry of Christ up until this point, back in verse 14 of chapter 1, it said that he was preaching the gospel. Verse 17, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you to become uh, fishers of men. He was to do that by teaching them. Verse 21 Jesus went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach them. 22, he was recognized because of his teaching, because he was teaching as one having authority. Verse 27, they were all amazed at his teaching. Again, saying, this is a new teaching with authority. Down in 38, um, he said, I need to go somewhere else so that I can preach. In 39, uh, he went throughout all Galilee preaching. And then 2-2, they were all gathered together uh, listening to him teach. So he's done a lot of teaching and a lot of preaching up until this point. He's flatly said this is his purpose, to preach and to teach. And again, I think we have a, a tendency to, to overlook that aspect of Jesus' ministry because it's just so vanilla for us, right? It's so mundane. Uh, we see preachers and teachers all the time. That, there's nothing special about that. But the fact that he is healing people and uh, raising people from the dead and casting demons out of people, I think in our minds that, that sticks a little bit more. But that wasn't his primary focus. His primary focus was to teach the word and to announce the, the kingdom of God and that it is at hand. And so, again, notice now these people are actually coming to him to, to listen to him teach, not to see any of these other signs or miracles. Um, they had all come down by the seashore to hear him teach. And um, verse 14 says that he came upon Levi, or, or Matthew, the tax collector. Now, tax collectors, I'm sure as you're aware, are a, a despised profession, right? They were working for the Roman government. They were traders from their, their home country. And they were collecting money on behalf of the Roman government for the... Uh, for in Levi's case, for uh, for Herod Antipas, the the vassal king that he was working under, who was placed there by the Roman government, and he was seen as an, an absolute traitor by his kinsmen. Uh, listen to this quote from William L. Lane. He says, "When a Jew entered the custom service, 
He was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or a witness in a court session. He was excommunicated from the synagogue, and in the eyes of the community, his disgrace extended to his family. So he was absolutely seen as an outsider, not even welcomed into the synagogue. Um, he was seen as a, a traitor by his, his countrymen. We see that uh, Jesus chose him regardless of that fact. Regardless of the fact that he was a, a tax collector. And this is uh, even less likely than the fishermen that Jesus went and chose. These four fishermen back in chapter 1. He's now choosing a tax collector. A traitor to his own countrymen. And this is more scandalous than when Jesus went up and, and touched the, the leper. That would be... Both of those were absolute taboo in the society. But to call a, a tax collector and invite him to come be a part of your group was absolutely uh, scandalous. And notice that he was down by the, the seashore. Um, that's where Jesus is walking, according to verse 13. And he comes across this tax booth. That's not something that I would expect to see walking down by the beach to see a, a tax booth right there, an H&R block or something, right? That's not... Uh, typical in our, our day and age. But he was likely down by the seashore uh, collecting taxes from the fishermen who were hauling in all these fish. And Caesar wanted a, a piece of that pie. And so he sent the tax collectors down there so that they could collect income tax on the, the fish that was being caught and brought in and sold around the Sea of Galilee. And so with Levi being down there that would indicate that that was kind of his his territory that was where he was at so it's very likely that he actually knew these other four fishermen beforehand um, speculating a little bit but i don't think it's uh, a far stretch to say that levi would have known peter or yeah simon and, and andrew and james and john and had some kind of relationship with them and i imagine that could have caused a little bit of tension when jesus invited him to be part of our group well actually he didn't invite him to be a part of their group at all, right? Um, just like with the other disciples, Jesus um, didn't invite him, but he commanded rather than requesting Levi to, to get up and to follow him. Uh, it was not really a, an option. He didn't say, well, if, if you really want to, if, if you will, he just told him, follow me. And we see that Levi actually complied. He got up and he followed after the Lord. In here I have it up here. Luke 5.28 says that he left everything behind to follow after Jesus. Now, remember, he's working for Rome, right? He is under the, the leadership of Caesar. Caesar wasn't a nice guy. And I'm sure that you guys, hopefully not yourselves, but perhaps, I mean, we've, we've all been foolish at some point, but um, even if not even if you haven't been there yourself, I'm sure that you've seen people not show up to work, just get up and walk out or no call, no show. And that's not usually received very well. But when you're working for Caesar, that's even less okay, right? He was working on behalf of Caesar and he was handling money for Rome, uh, passing through his fingers. And he just got up and he, he left without saying a word. Um, I imagine that he could have been in, in quite a bit of trouble for leaving his post in that kind of way, but he did so because 
the Lord of Caesar called him to do so. All right, any other thoughts or questions on those couple of verses? The call of Matthew slash Levi? Well, that was his, his job, so those guys were despised not only because they were working for Rome, the enemy, but they were also pocketing some of that money. And yeah. They were the ones that were setting the, the rates because that was their livelihood. Yep. Yeah, he was ripping everybody off, and now he's not going to be able to do that. And the way that it would work is uh, they would kind of be contractors, these tax collectors, and so they would put a bid in with uh, Rome and say, well, I think I'm able to draw in X amount of dollars. And so they would get the, the gig to go down by the Sea of Galilee and collect the funds, and uh, they were required to bring in that certain amount to pay that to Rome. And if they wanted more above that, they needed to charge more uh, on top of the taxes that they were going to give to Rome. And they were absolutely incentivized to charge more than uh, what they had told Rome so that they could feed themselves. So they were seen as sinners and scoundrels, as we'll see in the, the coming verses, for sure. Yes, Jim? I think it's interesting. You said Jesus didn't give Levi a choice. He said, follow me. Yeah. When we become Christians, Um, our choice is follow him and be in Christ or die and be accountable for our sins, right? I, I know. Sometimes Christians act like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to do that. Or, I don't believe this. Or, I don't believe that. Or, you know, we're not given a choice either. Yeah. You're part of the family. Follow me. Yep. And we need to be obedient, right? Good. You know, the Baptist when he was baptizing, he had uh, was it Luke 3 uh, the tax collector showed up to be baptized and asked him what to do and he says collect no more than you're authorized to do so and then the soldiers says, don't take any more than your wages basically be content with what you have so yep. clearly they were ripping people off yes, yes. Standard practice. very dishonest uh, form of employment all right, verses 15 through 17, Jesus eating with sinners. So it seems like after this encounter with Levi, they went and had a, a little party. Let's read in verse 15. Will somebody grab that for us, 15 through 17? Mark 2. All right, I'll grab it. Mark 2, 15. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so we see here that Jesus is having a, a dinner party of sorts at Levi's house, and the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisee scribes somehow become aware of the fact that they're there uh, reclining and eating. They're 
having this relaxed type of dinner party. It's a very friendly, intimate setting. It's not a, a formal business meeting that they're having, but they're a client and they're um, there with all of Levi's friends, all of his tax collectors and sinners. Now, we see in verse 16 that the scribes and the Pharisees, um, they were legalistic separatists who judged Jesus for his choice of association. They said, why is this man eating with these tax collectors? Why is he eating with these sinners? They had this skewed view of society in a, a hierarchical sense that the scribes and the Pharisees, they were up at the top. They were at the... Um, they were more holy and elite somehow. And the tax collectors and the sinners, they were of a, a lower class. And being of a lower class, that they shouldn't be associated with. Now, Jesus, he was a, a rabbi. He was a, a teacher of the people. And so being a teacher of the people, he would have been expected by the Pharisees and the scribes to be of the, the higher class and to associate with the higher class rather than the, with the lower class. And by associating with the lower class, these, these tax collectors or these uh, sinners, he would be illegitimate as a rabbi. He wouldn't be seen as a, a legitimate teacher, and um, that would just be evidence that either he didn't know that they were tax collectors and sinners, or um, that he didn't care, and because he didn't care, he couldn't have been holy and righteous and of this elite group like they saw themselves to be. Um, notice here that tax collectors are mentioned as separate from sinners. Just as we saw in that quote from William Lane, I think that's who I quoted, uh, the, the tax collectors, they weren't embraced by the community. Not only weren't they embraced, but their whole families weren't embraced. They were seen as outsiders. They were seen as somebody who didn't submit themselves to the law. And sinners would be very much the, the same way, that they were people who didn't submit themselves to the authority of the, the Torah, of the Old Testament law. Um, perhaps they, they knew of it, but they didn't care to, to honor it or to submit to it, and so they were recognized as sinners. And Jesus was associating himself with both of them and, again, being viewed as illegitimate because of it. And the, the Pharisees of the scribes, they came to... Um, to the disciples, and they asked them to, to approach Jesus. I'm looking for the verse. I'm not finding it. Maybe 16. The scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. And they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? I find it kind of interesting that they didn't go to Jesus because well, he's Jesus. What's that? They yeah, they didn't want to be associated with that either, right? Because then they would be illegitimized themselves. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, they, they went to the disciples rather than to, to Jesus. And it just reminds me of growing up when you tell your friend, hey, go ask your mom if we can go play or go ask your mom if we can have such and such. Uh, because you don't want to go to the authority of yourself um, for whatever reason. Either you don't want to associate with these sinners or tax collectors or um, perhaps they were also, I'm sure they were also afraid. Maybe not so much at this point, but they definitely became 
uh, more fearful later on as they were put in their place by Jesus. And it ultimately comes to a head where Jesus puts them in their place and it says, well, after that, they didn't, they didn't approach Jesus with any more questions, but they're not quite there yet. They also are still in the process of learning about Jesus' authority and, and who this man is. All right, so uh, Jesus then turns this accusative question and flipped it back on them. So we have to realize that this is uh, a question of accusation. It's not a legitimate question, right? Um, they're coming to Jesus and um, really being kind of snarky, saying, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? In verse 17, Jesus responds by saying, um, it says, and hearing this, Jesus said to them. So overhearing them ask the disciples. Jesus said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So was Jesus implying that these scribes of the Pharisees were healthy or sick? What was, what was Jesus getting at with this question? I thought they were righteous. He was kind of, right? He, he knew they weren't right. They, they thought they were righteous. So he was saying, well, was he saying kind of like, well, you guys are too good for this guy. I'm, I'm coming to the people who actually need help. Yeah, he calls them, quote unquote, righteous, right? Well, before he does that, he says that they were healthy, right? And then uh, I think that that is equated with, again, quote unquote, righteous. So not that they were truly righteous, but in their eyes, they, they thought that they were righteous, right? They thought that they were healthy. And he contrasts that with those who are sick, right? Quote unquote again. And that would be equated with sinners. Uh, let's turn to, to First John. I'm going to use a, a Kleenex as a bookmark today. All right, First John. Will somebody read chapter 1, verse 8 for us? First John 1, 8. Who's got that? All right, thanks, Dory. All right. So I think what Jesus was doing was he was equating the healthy slash quote-unquote righteous with uh, those who are self-deceived. And there we go. So he's saying, you guys are, you're righteous, right? You're, you're healthy. But in reality, I think that they are self-deceived. Um, in verse 9 of 1 John 1, it says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in order to confess our sins, we need to first embrace the fact that we are sinners, that we are unhealthy, that we are sick. And I think that this makes us self-aware if we actually realize that we're not healthy, we're not righteous in and of ourselves, we have no self-righteousness, then we become self-aware that we are in need of a savior because what good is a, a doctor for who only sees people who are sick or who are healthy right that's that's not a good doctor if you have to be healthy in order to go to that doctor it seemed like we were kind of approaching that during our, our COVID days right that if you were sick you weren't allowed to go to a hospital and it's just 
it, it doesn't compute and doesn't match up. But if there's a doctor who refuses to see sick people, that's not a, a good doctor. And in a similar sense, Jesus is saying, what good is a savior for those who are righteous? If you guys don't need a savior, then what, what am I even doing here? Why do you need a Messiah, right? That doesn't compute, it doesn't line up. Were you gonna say something, Jim? You think any of them got it? I mean, they knew the law. These guys did study the law mm-hmm. and read the scribes and the Pharisees. Yeah, I think they some of them did. They weren't 100%. Yeah, and I think in John 3, Nicodemus is kind of yeah. there and he's flirting with the idea and he's wondering and questioning and later on we see evidence to suggest that maybe he did perhaps embrace Christ and um, Joseph of Arimathea right so there are glimpses of people who got it but um, not all of them right I, I think he was just kind of digging at them yeah and just letting them know again he was yeah, okay, you're right. answering their question with a, a question yeah I, I didn't come for for the sick I, or I didn't come for the, the healthy I came for the, the sick you're, you're righteous what are you worried about go your way yep if you don't <laughs> need, need me get out of here yeah and we've already seen uh, the leper. He understood that, right? He understood that he was unclean. He came to Jesus in uh, humble repentance and realizing his need for a savior. We saw that already with um, the, the lame man who was lowered down, uh, not just him, but his friends, that they needed to go to Christ for healing. Uh, he couldn't go anywhere else. Obviously, the, the lame man had a, a saving faith, not just a faith that... Jesus could make him well, but he had a faith that uh, permitted Jesus to say, son, your sins are forgiven. He had a a belief in the fact that Jesus was God. Um, He had this, I'm sick, I am a sinner, I am self-aware, and I need Jesus. But the- We see that today, too. If you, there's so many people say they don't believe in God, but there was a pastor in Georgia who made this statement actually is the governor too, made the statement that the children of God were the ones that were saved. And the press even came out this big deal. The governor yes. doesn't think we're all children of God. Why do they care? They don't believe in God. Yeah. But they couldn't leave it alone. <laughs> the gospel divides, right? And Christ didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword and divide even a family within itself. How much more uh, a politically rife society that um, we're just at each other's necks. They wanted to say we're all children of God, but I don't believe in God. Yeah. Where's the? <laughs> yep. Where's it's inconsistent. The contact there. Yep. Good. All right. So, Christian, what category do you fit in? Both. <laughs> all right. Good answer. Forgiven. <laughs> Forgiven. All right. So not in in either one of those necessarily, right? But these are uh, positions that we are in before we we come to Christ. This speaks of our our heart condition um, and somebody who is being presented with the gospel, right? So either you're going to be self deceived or self aware, and this is the the necessary position that we need to. To come to Christ. And we come to Christ, of course, through the cross, but we don't come to the cross by this, this method of being 
healthy and self-righteous. Uh, we have to come to Christ by, by being sick. Uh, it's the, the poor in spirit who are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, to have this understanding that we have this need before Christ. And we come to the cross, and then we are made new, right? Um, section this side off. So we're new, we are reborn. Um, again, going back to John chapter 3, we are uh, redeemed and regenerated to be made into a new creature. Uh, Titus 3, 5. Does somebody have that? Either memorized or ready to read for us? What's Titus 3, 5 say? I had that we saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done according to this person by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. All right. He saved us not based on deeds that we have done, but instead we've been washed by the Holy Spirit, we've been renewed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, made into a, a new person because we've realized it's not by deeds that we have done. Uh, continuing on in verse John, verse John 1.10 says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So it's not to say that um, when we come to Christ, we're not going to uh, be sinners, that we are going, in a sense, we are truly righteous without being quote-unquote righteous, right? He has given us his righteousness, and in turn, he's taken our sins. Uh, positionally, that is where we are as Christians, but we still struggle with sin. We're still in this, this body of flesh, um, and we still struggle with that. Yeah, we're forgiven, but we're not fully cured yet. <laughs> not yet. Not until we are glorified with him one day, right? All right. Um, going back to Mark, um, Actually, I want to read the, the parallel passage from Matthew. So Matthew, in his account, um, after saying that uh, it's not the sick who need a doctor, or not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, Matthew quotes Hosea 6.6. 6, and he says, For I delight in loyalty or compassion. That's that old Hebrew word hesed. Maybe not old, but beautiful Hebrew word hesed, right? Talking about his grace. He says, I delight... I delight in this hesed rather than sacrifice and knowledge of God rather than in burnt offerings. So again, just goes to show that he wants our, our heart, not just our outward show, not just what we have to, to offer on the outside. And he tells the, the scribes, the learned ones, right? The scholars, he tells them, go and learn what this means, that I desire compassion rather than sacrifice. You guys are so high and lofty. You guys are so knowledgeable. You call yourself scribes. You need to go and learn what this means in Hosea 6.6, 6, that I don't desire your outward, what you have to offer to God, the sacrifice. I desire a heart change. I desire for you to realize that you're sick, that you're sinners, that you're not healthy, and you need a Savior. And so we should take these things into, whoa, what did I just do? I'm moving over the place. All right. Um, we need to uh, take these things into account when uh, we are sharing the gospel with others too, that uh, everybody is in, in one of these categories, right? They're either healthy, righteous, they're self-deceived, or they're sick and sinners and self-aware. And as such, we need to be preaching a, a clear gospel. First Corinthians 12 says that unless the trumpet sounds a clear call, who will get ready for battle? Uh, we need to speak clearly and 
if they are indeed healthy and righteous, um, they're going to reject the gospel. And that's okay. There are going to be people that reject Jesus, and we shouldn't be discouraged by that. Instead, we should continue to preach their, their need to them. Um, law to the proud and grace to the humble. Share with those who are sick and they realize their sickness. Well, there is a, a Savior who has saved me. There is a, a physician who has cleansed me, and he can do the same for you. Um, realizing that the fields are indeed white for harvest, and we shouldn't be discouraged by those who are self-deceived, but we should seek after those who are self-aware. Any thoughts or questions on Jesus eating with these sinners and the response of the, the scribes and Pharisees? Blessed are those who are weak in spirit. Amen. What's interesting that that lame guy had four friends who believed that Jesus could help him also. Mm-hmm. So got... That's just very interesting. Because that was also a serious event for them to go bear a hole in somebody's house. <laughs> yeah. Probably Peter's roof. <laughs> well, that would be scary. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they, they had faith as well. And again, we're, we're kind of left to speculate there, and a lot of commentators do that, well, maybe they had faith that wasn't saving faith. They just had faith in Jesus' ability to heal this man, but it wasn't a faith that was able to, to forgive their sins. That's speculation would also be speculative to say, well, their sins were forgiven as well because they were there. We just don't know. Uh, we don't want to go beyond what Scripture says, but it was definitely a, a great demonstration of love for their friend, um, friend who was in a, a hard, hurting situation who didn't really have much to offer back to them. Perhaps they were relatives or um, just friends who were really soft-hearted and appreciated him for, for who he was and not for what he could do for them. Uh, Logan, you had something. Yeah, I was thinking how, uh, so Jesus, he was, he was the teacher and was creating, he was choosing his followers, which was, I think, was a common thing in them days for the teachers or a rabbi, whatever, to go out and choose his followers. It was actually the other way around. It's more common for the the followers to okay. choose their teachers, yeah. Okay. And so, kind of like somebody going to a, a college, they would put in an application or yeah. not actually an application, but they would say, hey, can I, can I follow after you? I, I recognize you're this great scribe and they would want to follow him. And so Jesus was kind of breaking custom, going out okay. and finding his disciples. So that there would have flagged people to be looking at this and saying, wow, look at the people he's choosing. Yeah. First of all, he's choosing fishermen. And now he's gone, tax collectors. Uh -huh. You know, what's he going to do next? And so Very motley crew, huh? <laughs> this was like an a, a active show that was happening, and everybody was, well, especially the, the, the religious leaders were like, okay, now what's he going to do next? You know, he's choosing sinners and tax, collect, tax collectors, and it was just driving them nuts. Yeah, and Jesus <laughs> was very unorthodox. It would have been... Uh, Great show to watch, a reality TV show, right? Uh, just what is going on here? What is what is this scribe doing? Or this, he would have been considered a, a scribe or a rabbi. Why is he collecting these yeah, these random people? Be called prostitutes and 
killers. Yeah, yeah, and he did have interaction <laughs> with prostitutes and killers, right? All right, well, let's move on. We got one more slide. I think we can get through it in 10 minutes. We're going to talk about uh, verses 18 through 22, talking about fasting. So in verse 18, it says that John's disciples, who's John here? It's talking about John the Baptist, right? So the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So again, Jesus is being presented with a, a kind of accusation right out of the gate by two different groups. We have to recognize that they are different. One of the other, I don't remember if it was Matthew or Luke, but uh, one of them only mentions John's disciples. And Mark mentions them first here, so it's likely that they are primarily in view. But these two different groups, so the Pharisees' disciples and the disciples of John the Baptist, they come and say, how come we're fasting, but you are not fasting? I think it's important to note, first of all, that the only mandated day of fasting under the Old Covenant was the Day of Atonement. You can look at that in Exodus 20 and Leviticus 16, that that's the only day in which they were told, uh, you must fast. And the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, that was a day in which they were um, to offer atonement or covering for their sins. And so it was uh, a kind of somber day. But tradition developed over the course of time that called for fasting every Monday and every Thursday. And that's something that the Pharisees would have recognized and they would have observed to fast twice a week. Remember the story in... Uh, is it Luke? Oh, maybe it's Luke 11. I don't know. Where this Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this man or, or other man. is not like this sinner or this tax collector. But I actually come before you and I fast twice a week and I pay my tithes and on and on he goes. But he says he fasts twice a week. So that was the custom of the Pharisees to fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And it seems like John's disciples, um, they very likely could have been fasting for a, a different reason from the Pharisees, but they also were fasting and coming before Jesus and saying, how come it, you guys don't fast, and yet we are fasting? And then Jesus um, answers with a, a question himself. But I think we have to first realize that this also is not an, an honest question, right? Just like the, the previous question that, that Jesus was asked, um, this is a, an unhonest question. So before he was asked, how come your, the disciples were asked, how come your master is eating with tax collectors and sinners? It was just a, a veiled accusation. And now he's being asked a, a similar question. How come you guys don't fast? Did I say that correctly? Back up in um, 15, he was asked, how come... He's dining and eating with tax collectors and sinners. Now he's being asked, how come he doesn't fast? And so it was a, a veiled critique. Um, maybe not so veiled, but a, a pointed, severe critique, right, of Jesus. And here's how he responds in verses 19 through 22. It says, And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, 
Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Interesting. Um, let me go back. I want to read that again. And actually, I want to ask one of you guys to read it again. But as you read it, I want you to, to take note of the references to time. There are several time references throughout that passage. So will somebody read that for us again as we take note of the, the references to time in that passage? Who's got 19 through 22 for us? When the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Read it uh, No, that's good for now. What are the, the time references that you guys noticed in there? There's two times. A time when the bridegroom's with him and a time when he's not. Okay, good. So the bridegroom's not going to be with him at a point. And just some of the, the words that he uses throughout there. While he is with you and as long as he is with you. And the days will come. And then in that day. And then in uh, 22, 21, 22, he uses the references of new and old. And I think those also uh, have some, uh, some import as far as references to time. And so um, I do want to, to note that... Um, Oh, we already saw that Jesus responded with a, a counter question, but uh, Jesus doesn't discount the practice of fasting. He doesn't say it's bad to fast, but he says that it's not appropriate while he is with them. Um, it's a, a matter of, of timing, it seems. So in verses 19 and 20, it talks about the, the wedding celebration. And a celebration is just that. It's not a time for, for mourning. It's not a time for... Uh, being sad and fasting all throughout scripture is connected with times of distress, with times of war or sickness or times of confession, times of danger. That's what fasting is connected with. It's not con connected with times of celebration. And in fact, even within the uh, rabbinical laws, there were laws against fasting during a wedding because that is a, a time of celebration. They don't want uh, Pharisees and scribes be walking around fasting and saying, oh no, I, I, I can't partake of that because I'm, I'm fasting right now, right? And just their, their piety and their holiness. Uh, so there were laws against fasting at a wedding. And Jesus is pointing that out, that the bridegroom is here. You don't fast while the bridegroom is here. But he says in verse 20 that a day is coming when the bridegroom will be taken away. And this is likely the first reference in Mark's gospel to Christ's death, that he is going to be taken away. He's going to be leaving in that day. And uh, verses 21 and 22, talking about the shrunken cloth and the, the wineskins, I think those are also references to time. So the, the shrunken cloth, he says, you know, if you have a, a hole in your, your cloth, in your garment, you don't uh, patch it with a, a piece of unshrunken cloth, right, that, that goes over it, this nice piece of unshrunken cloth that I've drawn for you. Um, because if it hasn't been pre-shrunk, then it's just going to shrink whenever you wash it, whenever it has water on it. 
and then it's going to tear away and you're going to have a, a bigger hole that is going to result rather than the, the smaller hole. So you need to um, do it at the, the proper time in the proper way. And it was not the proper time in the proper way for uh, the disciples of Christ to be fasting because the, the bridegroom was with them. Uh, the kingdom of God was at hand. It was not a, a time for fasting. <clears throat> and there have been many commentators who have suggested a number of other interpretations on top of just the aspect of time and him answering this direct question of fasting, which Jesus often does. He often uh, doesn't answer the question that he's asked, but he, he goes beyond that. And so they've suggested, well, perhaps the, the reference to the old garment and the old wineskins is in reference to the, the law and that Jesus is saying that the, the new is speaking of grace, that grace supersedes the law. Some have said that um, it's not the, the law, but rather the old covenant that is being represented by the old, and the new is being represented by the new covenant, or that the, the old garments and the old wineskins represent the traditions of men, and those need to be done away with, and the new covenant needs to be embraced. <clears throat> and then sometimes people will flip that, and they'll say that what was really old was the, the word of God, the, the unvarnished word of God was old, um, and it, it was better. They'll say that old wine is better than new wine, that the, the cloth that was already pre-shrunk, that that was better than the new cloth, and then the new is represented by the traditions of men who come and they want to impose their own traditions, such as fasting, upon the unvarnished word of God, and that we need to not mix those, but we need to just embrace the old, the word of God. I have no idea if there's any extra meaning like that. Um, I don't see it in the text. I think, um, and I don't want to accuse anybody else of adding to scripture, but I, I don't think that it's clear in the text. Um, and that could very likely be just my own deficiency in my understanding. But I think that it's simply a, a reference to time and Jesus saying it's not the proper time for for my disciples to fast. One day they will be fasting. If you guys see something else in the text or come across something that you think is viable, then I would love to hear that. Um, but commentators are all over the place as far as um, different meanings that they try to see within this parable. And I'm just not comfortable teaching any of those authoritatively. Um, I think the, the clearest meaning and the simplest meaning that Jesus seems to be trying to convey is the, the discrepancy in time. But we are out of time, speaking of time. So um, let's pray and we'll return next week. Next week, we're going to have uh, uh, a wiser, more experienced teacher. And uh, I'm excited for it. So read ahead in your, well, not next week. Next week, we are not meeting here, actually, for Sunday school. We're just meeting for the, the main service. But two weeks from now, uh, we'll have a, another teacher and so read ahead and come and uh, that'll be a good time let's pray god thank you again for your love for your grace help us have again a, a greater understanding of your text if there is more here that you would have for us i pray that you would reveal that to us and help us to see what it is that um, that you would have us to to glean from your word god help us as we seek to focus our our hearts and our attention on you this morning and uh, just fill us with your love and goodness Amen.
Do any of you guys have a different position on 